0: This is Baseball Tonight, the podcast.
1: This is the Baseball Tonight podcast for Wednesday, January 12, 2022, and today will be better than yesterday. Producing from his home studio in the foothills of Connecticut is Taylor Schwenk. Sarah Abbott is riding shotgun from Nebraska. I'm Buster only working from my home in New York. Uh, There is
0: typically nothing going on during this labor stoppage, but Taylor, we have breaking news today. Yeah, man. Jesse Rogers is going to stop by. He uh, he teased something to both of us as we arrange this podcast. So I'm very excited to hear what he has for us. It's going to be the first time we've heard this breaking news. So uh, Breaking is- <laughs> news
1: during a labor stoppage. Like when I first heard this, I saw his email. I was like, what in the world could that be?
0: Right.
1: Because right. <laughs> I don't think it's a deal. <laughs> uh, we'll get to Jesse Rogers uh, in a moment. We're going to be talking also with Paul and Mbekides about the top 10 positional player rankings that we've been doing on ESPN.com. Let's update the baseball labor situation.
2: That's <laughs> yeah. Yeah,
1: a situation. Jeff Passon reporting that the players and owners uh, will talk on Thursday. I don't think anybody thinks a deal is coming anytime soon. First pitch is part of ESPN Nation brought to you by Dr. Pepper. The one fans deserve. Uh, some news and notes. Eric Chavez was recently hired by the New York Yankees, but he's already jumped over to the New York Mets to be their hitting coach. He, of course, uh, is good friends with Billy Epler, the new general manager of the Mets. Those two work together with the Angels. Uh, this is pretty cool. Rachel Balkbeck, uh will manage the low A team for the New York Yankees in the upcoming season in Tampa, making her the first female skipper in affiliated professional baseball the Athletic was the first to report that.
0: Taylor, what else you got? Buster, well, a couple things here. ESPN's newest podcast, Swaggo and Perk, been around for a while now. I encourage everyone to check it out. You can listen wherever you get your podcasts. It is also on YouTube, a new thing we are doing over here at ESPN Podcast. That is very exciting. Also, the College Football Podcast, obviously the season wrapped up last night with Georgia as your national champions for the 2021 season. We're doing a couple recap shows over there. We did Ryan McGee and Mark Schlabaugh today. Reese Davis, David Pollock, we're going to hear from him, his thoughts as a Georgia Bulldog himself, an alum, College Football Hall of Famer, see what he is feeling after Georgia wins its first title in about 40 years. And uh, watch NBA Today on ESPN and the ESPN Plus app. That is on at 3 p.m. Eastern, Noon Pacific, Monday through Friday. And you can also listen to that show as a podcast.
1: For the ones who get it done, Granger offers high quality supplies and solutions for every industry, as well as access to product specialists who have the knowledge and experience to answer your toughest questions. Plus, their commitment to being your safety partner can help you keep your facilities safe and your people safer. Call, click Granger.com or just stop by. That's code BASEBALL. Visit VividSeats.com or download the app today. Vivid Seats. Experience it live. Jesse Rogers covers baseball for ESPN. And, and Jesse, first off, how are you doing? How are your holidays?
3: Very well. I'm ensconced in, 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 in very cold Chicago right now, um, as I am every winter in the off season, wishing for spring training to be here already and a full spring training. So uh, uh, hopefully your holiday was uh, w- good as well. I mean, I had a good time. It just was indoors.
1: Yeah. And at this point, I think you'll agree with me and we'll talk about the labor situation in a few minutes Uh, it feels like spring training is a theory at this point. (laughs) I don't think anybody necessarily in baseball is confident that that is going to start on time. But first, um, you know, when we talked about, uh, Taylor and I talked about having you on the podcast this week, uh, he was like, yeah, Jesse just reached out. He's got breaking news. And so as you and I are taping this on Tuesday night, what I was told was, look, you can't post the podcast until a certain time on Wednesday, So uh, it's cool for me to hear whatever breaking news you
2: have.
3: Well, after 16 years on the mound, one John Lester is retiring from the game of baseball, and he wanted to wait until Wednesday morning to announce, and he allowed me, he gave me the honor of writing his retirement story at ESPN.com, so you can check it out now. And then we have a companion piece about his whole career and the Hall of Fame debate that will come up with him in the coming years. Uh, And of course, I covered him for six years in Chicago with the Cubs, and those were some fun times uh, with with the team, covering the team, being around the team. They won a World Series for the first time in 108 years. And as you know, Buster, he's one of the all-time giants in the game, literally six foot four. He's intimidating, but just his personality was infectious inside the clubhouse and outside. Really good um, with the media, including myself. And like I said, I was very honored to write his retirement story up at ESPN.com right now. Yeah, one of the
1: great postseason pitchers, as you know, of, of uh, all time in terms of his performance there. Uh, you know, in 2007, he sort of announced himself to the world, uh, coming back from cancer and pitching for the Red Sox in the 2007 World Series. That was a big story. Uh, you know, the, his departure from the Red Sox was incredibly controversial in Boston because of how the Red Sox ownership lowballed him in offer. They wound up trading him. And I think you would agree with me on this. You know, he got a six-year, $155 million deal to sign with the Cubs. This is a case of a a pitcher getting a huge multi-year deal, and it was worth every nickel for the Chicago Cubs.
3: Well, in my story, I mentioned this. There was an online poll done in Chicago a few years ago, and he was voted the best free agent signing in the city's history. And that's any sport, not just baseball. You know how free agents go in all sports. They can sometimes not exactly live up to their contract. He was one that did. Very beloved figure here in Chicago. We'll never have to pay for a meal here ever again, though he can afford it after signing that big deal. And, you know, I talked to a lot of his former teammates. Dustin Pedroia, his closest friend in baseball, said he was in tears, in tears when John called him and said, I'm signing with the last place Chicago Cubs instead of going back to Boston. And of course, on the other coast, he could have signed with the world champion San Francisco Giants. So think think about that leap of faith he took. And by the way, the Giants were offering more money. And he took that leap of faith uh, with the Cubs, which paid off just a year later in 16 when they won the World Series. But Pedroia said it was the worst moment of his career on or off the field when John said, I'm not returning to Boston. So when I
1: think of, of John Lester, I think of toughness. Uh, you know, I I think of a a guy competing on the mound right from the get-go. I thought David Ross, his contribution to John Lester was to talk him down in the first inning when he would get mad at the umpires, you know, especially when he was in Boston, you'd see John, uh, you know, sort of frothing over different calls and Rossi would go out and tell him to calm down. Um, You know, he's told me about his mom, how tough his mom is. And I think that's where you know, John. Uh, you know, had a lot of that come through. I don't think the Cubs make that ascent the way that they did unless they signed
3: John Lester. What do you think? No, I, I. Jed Hoyer spoke to me about this. He really gave them legitimacy. John Lackey only signed with the Cubs because John Lester was there, and it just felt like this was a different sort of team once he arrived. That there was something real happening instead of the usual sort of lovable losers. You know, they have a shot, but we don't know if this is going to work out. But When he arrived, everything kind of changed in terms of that culture. Um, He was so dominant those first couple years. Understanding how to pitch a a National League lineup really came in handy for him, being able to navigate the bottom of the lineup for the first time, which included, of course, the pitcher, and then, of course, uh, what he did in the postseason, just cemented his legacy. It started in Boston and then just continued in Chicago. His career postseason ERA is 251 among the giants in the game among lefties it's fourth best all time so that's how I tell you that tells you how good he was in october just a dominant dominant pitcher and you know david ross said something to me so interesting we always talk we always use the cliche guys raise their game and joe madden would say this as well like, you shouldn't have to raise your game in any moment you you should be and it wasn't that it was that the stakes were raised he just was able to focus that much more when Chaos was going on around him. Think about Wrigley Field, game five of the World Series, do or die. They needed a big performance out of John Lester, and he came up with them. It's this focus that the great ones have while the stakes go up and up and up. And John Lester did that every single October he was in. And, uh, you know, like I said, um, you know, in the piece, there's going to be a Hall of Fame debate, certainly not just in five years, but year six, year seven, year eight. If Kurt Schilling gets in, this year, it really bodes well for a guy like John Lester, not necessarily in his first year of eligibility, but much later, maybe towards the end of his eligibility. You got to witness this part of his game, uh, which I find to be
1: fascinating because I've just seen and you have seen a lot of players, you know, an issue pops up and they uh, and I really don't mean this is a as a criticism. I mean it as is an observation. Uh, a flaw will develop in a player. And they melt. They don't know how to deal with it. I don't remember another situation comparable to what we saw with John Lester in that he clearly had this issue throwing to first base. Uh, the the industry, other teams began to focus on that and try try to take advantage of it. And man, he battled. You know, he didn't ever clean it up. He never got past that. But between he and David Ross and Joe Madden and Anthony Rizzo they battled. I
3: I thought that was a cool part of his career. It's a great example of what you said earlier about his toughness. He attacked that sort of with this mentality that it wasn't going to beat him. Okay. If he gave up the stolen base, he was going to strand him at second base, but even better than that, Buster, he found ways to keep that guy at first. Listen to these stolen base totals off the top of my head. When he came over to the Cubs um, first time in the national league a league, where you're going to run a little bit more, he gave up 44 stolen bases. His first season with the Cubs, it went from 44 to 28 to 19 to 10. Four years later, that's what he gave up on the bases by the end of his run with the Cubs. He figured out a way. He he varied his times to home plate. You're right, David Ross, Anthony Rizzo, and later Wilson Contreras certainly helped him out in that in that department. And then he was able to like pick off. I forget the Cardinal he picked off. And that really set the tone because he actually did throw over there, and now everybody had it on tape that he was at least willing to do it, and and he really attacked it with that toughness you mentioned. One other point I want to make regarding that. Towards the end with the Cubs especially, his skills were eroding, right? He didn't have his fastball. His cutter wasn't even as good. He remade himself. He reinvented himself several different times. Even this last year with the Nationals, a 5.05 ERA, and then he goes over to the Cardinals and has success there winning his 200th game. Several different times he went into that video room and found his flaws and fixed himself to, to go on a little bit of a run. Then he, might have, then he might come back down to earth, figure some things out, and go on that run again. So that's where that toughness came in. He didn't let those deficiencies beat him or define him late in his career. His career comes to an end in the midst of a a labor stoppage,
1: the owners locking out the players. You know, I wonder about this for John Lester in the same way that I wondered about it when Kyle Seeger announced his retirement. If we had a normal off season, right, where there was business taking place and contenders were filling spots, Uh, And everybody knew for sure when spring training was going to open, when the season was going to open. I wondered when Kyle Seeger retired, you know what? I wonder if he would have continued playing, maybe not as a star player at the same salary, but if he would have continued playing, if it was just a regular offseason and he could just go about his business and and stay in the same rhythm. John Lester is the same way. I mean, we saw at the end of last season um, with the Cardinals, he could be an effective pitcher.
3: Yeah, I don't think so he was breaking down. You know, last year was the first full season in like a decade he didn't reach 30 starts. He told me in the in the piece that I wrote, it was just getting harder and harder between starts and certainly in the off-season to prepare for the regular season. I don't disagree with your sentiment. The game is right now unhealthy off the field, labor problems, and it's a little bit unhealthy on the field. We know there it needs some changes in terms of the rules and the flow and the pace. So with those two things combined, I could see how, you know, there'd be some players a little down on the game might, might call it quits in John's case. I think it was more physical than anything. And he also offered this up to me that the pandemic opened his eyes. He's home with his family. He's enjoying yeah. his, his kids a little bit. Um, so maybe without the pandemic, maybe if physically he felt a little bit better at 38 years old, you might be right. But certainly the labor strife and, and the, the issues on the field, you know, in terms of just the flow of the game and everything have certainly contributed to, to some people and their, their, their sort of negative feelings towards, towards the, even the game that they love and that they get paid a lot of money for. Well, nice job with those stories. And again, you can go to ESPN.com to read about John Lester's decision to retirement and
1: about his legacy. Before you go, let's talk about the labor situation. Uh,
3: what do you hear? Well, I think we're starting to inch closer to real negotiation. I think if, if the players take free agency off the table, maybe arbitration off the table, and really focus on raising the CBT, uh, perhaps getting that bonus pool that Jeff Passan wrote about for pre-arb players, you win the MVP in your second year like Chris Bryant did, there's something there for you instead of just getting renewed, Right. Um, I think there's there's a path there. I think raising the CBT will certainly help. We know that the bigger agents, you know, with the big with the with the star players, would like to see that happen. They want the top teams to keep spending, and you do that by raising the CBT. It won't address every issue, uh, but I think it's a start. I think if you take hard salary caps off the table and four or five years of free agency off the table, we will start to see a path to an agreement. I,
1: I, you know what? I hope you're right. I got to say, on both sides, uh, you know, I worry on the owners' ownership side that you're going to have some teams that are going to say, "Look, we can't sell tickets because the sport is, you know, not moving forward, and so we're going to cut our payroll back," uh, and they're going to get draconian on their side. And what I worry about on the player side, you know, if we wind up, you know, seeing, uh, you know, some sort of negotiation, will it ever offset the amount of money that the middle class players are going to lose? by having this work stoppage. I think the middle class of players are just going to get wrecked once transactions start again.
3: Yeah, you're probably right. And it, it might be a year from now where you feel the full effect of a, of a new CBA. If you're the players, you just kind of got to get through this offseason. season. It's, yeah. it's already, it's already a little out of whack the way it's going to end with the flurry of moves. Um, but you, if they get their win or several little wins, then they'll be happy whether that really takes full effect a year from now or not. And that's where I think the owners have to understand. They have to give somewhere. They have to give the they have to let the players feel like they won in in a big way or on many little ways. And I'm hopeful that that will happen starting this Thursday when they sit down at the table. All right. Thanks Jesse. Always great to catch up. You too Buster, stay warm.
1: Dogs are an important part of our lives, and keeping them protected is a top priority, especially against nasty parasites. That's why you got to check out NexGard Plus, a Foxaloner, moxidectin, and Pyrantal chewable tablets. NexGard Plus chew's provide one and done monthly protection that kills fleas and ticks, prevents heartworm disease, plus it treats and controls roundworms and hookworms. That's a whole lot of protection packed into a delicious beef-flavored soft chew designed to make monthly dosing easy and enjoyable. So the next time you're at the vet, ask about NextGuard Plus Chews. They're the one-and-done monthly parasite protection you want for your dog. Used with caution in dogs with a history of seizures or neurological disorders. Dogs should be tested for existing heartworm infection prior to starting a preventive. so you can connect with candidates faster. And Indeed doesn't just help you hire faster, 93% of employers agree Indeed delivers the highest quality matches compared to other job sites, according to a recent Indeed survey. Join more than 3.5 million businesses worldwide that use Indeed to hire great talent fast. And listeners of the show will get a $75 sponsored job credit to get your job's more visibility at indeed.com/buster. Just go to indeed.com/buster right now and support our show by saying you heard about Indeed on this podcast. Indeed.com/buster. Terms and conditions apply. Need to hire? You need Indeed.
0: Jumping into the numbers. This is Hembo Knows on Baseball Tonight.
1: Hembo is Paul Imbiquiti, a researcher at ESPN, who is a honcho on the show Get Up uh, and on uh, Mike Greenberg's radio show. He tells us that really behind the scenes he's in charge. We'll defer to him on that publicly, privately. Mike Greenberg tells a different story. Hembo, how you
2: doing? are happy new year to you.
1: Likewise. Uh, although, you know, during the holidays, you and I were emailing frequently is I got ready for these top 10 positional player rankings that uh, we do every year. I I love this conversation. It's a fun conversation. It feels like this is like from yesteryear with baseball, right? We don't have to talk about competitive balance tax. We don't have to talk about free agency. We don't have to talk about uh, arbitration thresholds and tanking and service time manipulation. This is just a fun baseball conversation.
2: If there's anything I've learned in my, I don't know, nearly 10 years now working at ESPN Buster, the best sports conversation you can have is, is this player better or worse than this player? And the fact that you uh, allowed me to sort of contribute to all of your lists where I just pour through, as you can imagine, all the numbers for every different position. I mean, I probably evaluated something like 200 players, you know? So obviously it was a, a super good use of my time. Um, but a lot of fun, like you said, and, and it puts aside the conversations that we're having throughout the winter about how badly baseball is managing this stoppage, of course. And so I'm actually excited to, to talk about real baseball for the first time in quite some time.
1: Okay. And there's no doubt in my mind, you know, we've had years when it felt like shortstop was the most difficult position to rank. There've been years when it felt like third base was impossible. There's no doubt this year, right field. Oh, my God. (laughs) And I, you know, I got your uh, input. I got Sarah Lang's input. I'm talking to evaluators around the sport. And I swear every time I'd hang up the phone or, you know, close out an email, I'd be like, no, this is the way I'm going to rank it at right field. And then I would change it. I've changed it six or seven times. uh, And so I'll just ask you, if you did a right field ranking, who would be number one for you? And I'm going to tell you right now, there's no perfect answer. There's absolutely none because there's so many great players between Juan Soto, Ronald Acuna Jr., uh, Aaron Judge, Mookie Betts, and your man Bryce Harper.
2: For me, Buster, the number one right fielder in baseball right now is Juan Soto, and I expect him to remain so for something like the next decade. He just led the major leagues in on base percentage as a 22-year-old. He did so as a 21-year-old. That's not something that even Ted Williams ever did. He doesn't do everything else on the baseball field quite as well as some of the other guys that you mentioned. But as you know, we've talked about this many times, the most important skill that you can have as a baseball player is how often do you get out? In the case of Juan Soto, it's less frequently than practically any player in baseball. And by a long shot, you know, less frequently than any player in baseball, his age, he's my number one right fielder right now.
1: All right. Uh, My outfield rankings are going to be posted on ESPN.com on Thursday. And I'm going to jump it a little bit and tell you that in the end, I wound up settling on Ronald Acuna Jr. Uh, Wow. And and the reason why, because as I went through it, okay, you know, and and, uh, you and I are exchanging emails about how it's amazing when you look at the history of these two players and what they've done so far earlier in their careers. It feels like there's a direct line to Ted Williams and Joe DiMaggio. You know, with that great conversation, it feels a little bit like Willie Mays and and Henry Aaron breaking in at the same time, uh, you know, where the players are a little bit different, uh, but just accomplishing so much. And I think the reason why I settled on on Ronald Acuna Jr. was because of just his sheer range of skills and Hmm. how he's gotten better and better and better offensively. It's clear the plate discipline's gotten better. His pitch recognition's gotten better. And he does so many other things well. That's why I do feel like the DiMaggio-Williams comparison's apt because, you know, like uh, Ted Williams, Juan Soto was the more refined offensive player uh, over Joe DiMaggio, Ted Williams was. Um, But in terms of a range of skills, I don't know how you beat Ronald Acuna Jr.
2: I I could see him becoming the first player – To hit 50 homers and steal 50 um, bases in the same season, he definitely has the skill set to do it. There was a 162 game stretch over the course of a couple seasons in in which he had 50 homers with 40 steals, so we know that's in his bag. The only concerns, if there are any, with him and the reason he's below Soto on my list is a he had a major knee injury last year, which could affect his running at least for next year, and secondly. He struck out 194 times over his last 162 games. His plate control is improving. He's, his command of the strike zone is getting better, but there's still a lot more swing and miss in his game than Soto. And if we're comparing literally Hall of Fame talents, that would be the one nit I would pick.
1: Yeah. Uh, yeah. And if you, if you told me, as you did, you pick Juan Soto, that's t- completely reasonable. I think if you told me that you had uh, chosen Bryce Harper, I think that would have been reasonable. I think Aaron Judge... It was funny at the end of the process, I wound up putting Mookie Betts fifth, and that was more rock solid than I would have imagined than when I started, just because it seemed like he he slid last year with some of those nagging injuries. Did you agree with
2: that? I have Mookie Betts third on my list, but based upon the body of work last year, he would probably be fifth because of the injury and because of the fact that. As you know, he's only had a couple seasons in his career buster in which he's genuinely been a great hitter. And that's obviously the skill that ages best or most consistently over time. He can run like the devil, we know. and He's an outstanding defender out there. But I'm not so sure that Mookie Betts over time is going to hit like Aaron Judge or Juan Soto or Bryce Harper. So, I, yes, I do think that based upon last season, he probably belongs five For me, I'm looking at the long game and looking at a player who over the course of his career has averaged about eight wins above replacement over uh, a season, over uh, every 162 games he's played, which is just extraordinary value, even in the scope of baseball history.
1: So the number one starting pitcher is posted on Monday. No surprise, Jacob deGrom. But it was interesting as I prepared this, I had conversations with a lot of people on background. because No one can speak on the record. uh, You know, the shutdown from the commissioner's office on this. Uh, one of the conversations that's being had in baseball circles is would Jacob DeGrom, as great as he was last year, stop trying to focus on, on velocity, stop worrying about throwing that hard. And instead, like we've seen with pitchers in yesteryear, um, use his velocity more efficiently, you know, save, save some bullets, so to speak, um, and, and pitch effectively, potentially 93-95 instead of, you know, throwing 99-101 every time. What do you think of that whole conversation?
2: Um, it was a really good suggestion. And when I dug into the numbers, Buster, what I found and, and what you include in your piece on ESPN.com is that even if you split Jacobs, the ground velocity in half and look at all the fastballs in which he threw below 99 and then the same pitches he threw above, and that was sort of his average last year 99.2, just ridiculous. There isn't a significant difference in terms of opponent results based upon his velocity as hard as he throws and he throws as hard as any starting pitcher that ever lived. Jacob deGrom is not someone who I consider a thrower or a power pitcher because he, he doesn't have this sort of overwhelming high effort delivery. He can still paint and in the bottom quadrant of the strike zone the bottom uh, you know his his to his uh, to his glove side. He is utterly dominant and if Jacob deGrom wants to sit 95-96 to his glove side and he can throw 200 innings, he's going to win the Cy Young award next year and maybe the MVP. I'm confident in saying so. He 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 blew cheese so hard last year that I don't think there's any possible way you could expect him to sustain that and never qualify for an ERA title again. He only topped 100 pitches once or twice if memory serves, and that's not good enough. Jacob deGrom, to say Jacob deGrom at 80% is, is, is still the best pitcher in baseball, I think is an understatement. We're talking about Sandy Koufax in his prime game Buster. We're talking about the greatest pitcher I've ever seen. We're talking about late 60s Bob Gibson. All he needs to do is pitch, and if, so long as he's on that mound, he's going to be throwing hard, and, and he's going to be locating as well as anybody. I'm with you. Jacob, if Jacob deGrom can throw 200 innings next year, he could win MVP of the National League, but he's not going to get there if he's sitting 99 with his fastball.
1: And it's a big year for him next year because it's potentially he can opt out of his contract mm. uh, at the end of 2022, but he's got to demonstrate that he can take the ball on a consistent basis. Uh, top third baseman in baseball for you.
2: Uh, let me pull up my list here, Buster. Number one uh, for me, and this was actually pretty clear. I was surprised. Jose Ramirez for me yep. has consistently demonstrated no doubt. that he does everything as well as anybody. And for my money, if there if there was like one tradable player in the sport right now that I would be willing to you know, give away my entire farm system for, it would be him. The diversity of his skill set is extraordinary. The consistency is there and obviously the contract is very affordable. There are so many more famous or more popular third basemen right now but he has clearly, over the course of the last several years, I think sort of um, set himself apart because of the consistency at the top end of that production. So for me, he was number one.
1: Okay. And so this is going to be an interesting question for you. I felt like when I ranked my left fielders, okay, mm. the top left fielder for me, that there was a gap between him and number two that I thought was larger than in any other position. But as you're talking, that might also be Jose Ramirez. Tell me, who would you ha- has more of a gap between he and the rest of the field at his position? The number one left fielder, you and I think agree, Tyler O'Neill of the St. Francisco right. Cardinals, or Jose Ramirez?
2: There's a larger gap between Jose Ramirez and Manny Machado, my number two third baseman. Machado was outstanding in the in the you know sixty game season, of course. Uh, did not hit the way uh, last year the way that he did in that season. And look. I'm like the Jesse Winker captain on this podcast. I, I, I got to give some love to my boy, Jesse Winker mashing. And when he missed time last year, so went the red chances to make the playoffs. He is genuinely right now one of the 10 or 15 best hitters in the sport. To me, he's another person who I would be all in on trading for. I think Tyler O'Neill is clearly the best left fielder in the sport. But Jose Ramirez, I think if you – I'll do this research at some point. I think the gap in war between he and anyone else at his position over the last few years is obviously one of the largest of its kind.
1: All right. And then later in the week, we're going to have top 10 team rankings. I want to ask you about that. Uh, We disagreed somewhat. I found it interesting, your list and my list, where we generally speaking had teams in the same neighborhood. Mm -hmm. But I'm going to make the case for the Atlanta Braves to be number one. Okay. Oh, hit me. Hit me. And this is as of today, by the way. And we assume Freddie Freeman at this moment is a free agent, and to some degree, um, I believe that uh, you know Freddie's going to wind up back with Atlanta. But I, I, you know, we we rightly focus so much on uh, the trans, you know, the uh, the acquisitions that they had of the outfielders, you know, helping them win a World Series. And I think that that to some degree masked exactly. Uh, how much progress there was with so many of their great young players. I think mm. you would agree with me. Austin Riley, big step forward. Max Freed, a one seven ERA, one seven one ERA in the second half of the season. Uh, you know, Ozzie Albies continues to get better. We talk about Ronald Acuna Jr. Uh, him getting better. I, I know. I'm, I'm. This is total Vanderbilt homerism here. I wonder, Kyle writes, No one ever has doubted his talent. The success he had in the postseason, you know, will that launch him going forward? Do you have Mike Soroka coming back? Um, No one should feel sorry for Marcel Azuna because he, you know, has uh, created a domestic (laughs) violence situation last year, but he's coming back. I think the Braves are a really good team that a lot of people seem to overlook because they only won 88 games the regular season last year.
2: I agree with that. To to view the Braves as an 88-win team going into next season is foolish because – we saw over the last couple of months of that season, they were as good as literally anybody in baseball, as you pointed out so many times throughout their playoff run. Here's my one thing with the Braves right now. I can't put them as the number one team in baseball if they're losing or potentially losing their Hall of Fame first baseman. Yeah. Now, obviously, Ronald Acuna, if he plays 150 games next year, is going to produce somewhere between five and seven more, and has as good a chance as anybody to win the National League MVP. I think you'd agree with me. If you add Freddie Freeman to that team once again, they're going to win the National League easily, and I think probably would be... Vegas would still favor the Dodgers over the Braves, but I'm not sure that I would. But right now, hanging in the balance, like you emailed me, like give me, the, give me the power rankings right now. Right now, Freddie Freeman's a free agent, and he's a five or six win player by himself too. So, and he's obviously a big, a power, like a, enough of a power player in this whole thing to where, like, if I'm looking to break ties atop the top of this thing, I still favor the Dodgers over them.
1: Well, and blame the Braves ownership for turning this yeah. into a competition. Uh, they mm. should have just taken him off the board, paid him in the spring made a deal because he's only gotten more expensive given the year that he had, given the fact that the Braves won the World Series and Braves fans filled that ballpark. Speaking of the Braves, a Hall of Fame candidate that you have a special place for in your heart is Andrew Jones. Tell me about that.
2: (laughs) Yeah, I have this sort of uh, obsession buster with Andrew Jones getting in the Hall of Fame. I never would have thought as a a kid uh, growing up in Philadelphia, watching him terrorize my Phillies, that I would be the person championing his Hall of Fame case. But there was no doubt in my mind at the time that Andrew Jones was a clear and obvious Hall of Famer, at least when, when you watched him play. And I understand why up until this point, he's not gotten the sort of recognition that you might otherwise expect because he was not you know, truly one of the greats of his era. And his career dwindled, frankly. I mean, his 30s were as bad as, as anyone that's ever made the Hall of Fame, I, get, I guess you could say, at least under the circumstances with which he could. But I think there are a few obvious pegs to his case that make it obvious to me that he does belong. I mean, for one, Buster, he just might be the best uh, defensive outfielder of all time. And statistically, he ranks first above anyone else by whatever measure you really want to use. He also blended power and speed, excuse me, power and defense in a way that few players ever had. He had 345 home runs in seasons in, in which he won the glo- uh in which he won gold gloves. Only Willie Mays, Ken Griffey Jr., and Mike Schmidt had more. That's the kind of company he's he's in in that sense. He also, I think there's a sort of misconception that he was this sort of supernova, but when in reality, he had an outstanding peak and it lasted a long time, Buster, over the course of the 11 years in which he was a Braves regular. He produced more, WAR than all position players in baseball, aside from A-Rod and Barry Bonds. That's an 11-year span in which Andrew Jones was the third best player in all of baseball. It's pretty astonishing. And lastly, as I finish my, my, my pitch here for his first campaign, the Braves obviously are best remembered for, the, for winning the National League East in 14 consecutive seasons. Um, and during that span of time, he, he was their best player by war and five of them, five of them is more than Greg Maddox was, uh, did more than John Smoltz, more than Chipper Jones. When you see all those guys in the hall of fame, along with Tom Glavin, their managers in the hall of fame, their GMs in the hall of fame for my money, Jones is as singularly responsible for the brave success during that time as any of those people individually. And the fact that he's sort of been left out in the cold is sort of, um, confusing to me. Obviously there are some complications with his case off the, off the field. And I'm willing to acknowledge that. But to me, on the field, Andrew Jones is a clear and obvious Hall of Famer.
1: So you're a baseball geek like I am, and you'll love this story. I, I was talking, I think it was Terry Pendleton who told me this early in, in, uh, in Andrew's career. He talked about how unusual his diving catches are. He said that most outfielders, when they make diving catches, they'll come in like a plane going at a 45-degree angle, and they'll hit the ground and the ball will go loose. He said, watch. Andrew Jones and I went back and watched highlights of this and this is really cool. He's like a smooth jet. Just in the way that he can parallel to the ground, very ease, catches the ball, uh, you know, the ball's not jarred out. He said he does that better than anybody. Uh, there were so many elements to what he did defensively. I agree with you that are underrated and I and I again, I encourage everybody to go back and watch highlights of him playing center field. He was as good as Hembos saying. All right, Hembo, thanks for doing this. Later, boys. Get out of here, Hembo. Sick of Hembo.
0: Bleacher Tweets.
4: Hey, Buster, here are these week's Bleacher Tweets. First up, we have John Tollander. I enjoyed last week's Hall of Fame conversation with Derek, and I don't exactly believe writers should be voting as you suggested. But if they don't, what's the alternative? I worry about the committees like the one that put in Harold Baines.
1: Yeah, John, there's no question, and you raise a fair point. I don't think there would be any perfect system. Like, you know, you could put uh, former players uh, who, you know, to vote in players the first time they appear on a ballot, and you're still going to raise questions. You're going to have special committees, and we see controversy every time that, uh, you know, they make a selection. No matter what system you came up with, there would be questions asked Um, But as I say, as time has gone on, I think writers should get out of it. Sarah, I got to ask you, do you think writers should be involved in the voting?
4: I mean, yeah, I think that there's definitely value to it just because writers are following the teams throughout the whole year and they have been seeing these players throughout all their peaks and valleys. So I think there is value to that.
1: And clearly a lot of writers agree with you.
4: (laughs) Yeah, I mean, I'm sure they probably would. (laughs) Okay, next up, we have Devin Kelly. Hey, Buster and the Rev, do you think that Adam Wainwright will be a Hall of Famer? I think in the case for him is similar to what Jack Morris finally got elected.
1: I agree with you 100%. I think Adam Wainwright eventually will be a Hall of Famer. I don't think he will be the first time his name appears on a ballot. Uh, You know, he missed some time with injuries in his career. He doesn't have you know, the big gaudy numbers, uh, like, uh, you know, for example, uh, Pedro Martinez did. But I think eventually, yes, especially because of the respect of his peers, that he will get in the Hall of Fame.
4: Yeah. And lastly, we have Peter R. The only thing getting the parties together before the end of February is higher level intervention. Pres Biden calls up Joe Torre and Sweet Lou to organize the parties together for a Camp David summit. Isn't there some precedent for presidential intervention?
1: Yes, 95, the 94, 95 players strike. The White House got involved. Bill Clinton was there. Uh, Actually, I think it was Al Gore, the vice president at that time. And the stories from that situation are laughable. Like it's really funny (laughs) because at some point, I think what happens is is that the public figures think, you know what? We got to get all these baseball people together. We'll make a deal. And then they get into the room Nothing changes. And then the politicians basically go, okay, well, that's a waste of my time. And they walk out. That's kind of what happened in 94, 95. And I think at the moment, no matter if the president was Democrat or Republican, Sarah, I think you'd agree with me. There are probably bigger issues on the table for them.
4: (laughs) I mean, yeah, I guess, I don't know. Isn't there something called like COVID 19 going around or something? Bigger problems. (laughs)
1: That's exactly right. All right. Those are the Bleacher tweets for this week. Uh, That's it for today. My thanks to Jesse, to Hembo, to Sarah, and Taylor. Have a great day, everybody. Thanks for listening. Stay safe. And remember, hate and inequality based on skin color is something that we need to fight against every
0: single day. Thanks for listening to the Baseball Tonight podcast. If you're playing fantasy baseball, check out the Fantasy Focus podcast wherever you listen to podcasts. The Baseball Tonight podcast.
1: Dogs are an important part of our lives. That means protecting them from parasites. Ask your vet about NextGuard Plus, a Foxalaner, Moxidectin, and Pyrantal chewable tablets. NextGuard Plus Chews provides one and done monthly protection against fleas, ticks, heartworm disease, roundworms, and hookworms. Plus, they're delicious and easy to give. Used with caution in dogs with a history of seizures or neurological disorders. Dogs should be tested for existing heartworm infection prior to starting a preventive. Ask about NextGuard Plus Choose.